Psalm 115, if you are attending Wednesday night, second half of Recharge, you will be learning about the different books of the Psalter, the different sections. This is, Psalm 115 is in the fifth section, number five. You'll also notice that just like Psalm 116, Psalm 115, in the superscription it doesn't give us an author. It doesn't tell us specifically who wrote the psalm. There's a number of them that say it's the psalm of David. There's a number of them that tell us someone else, one by Moses, one by um, a number of other folks. This one doesn't tell us specifically. This morning we looked at how it really contrasts the gods of the world or trusting in anything other than the living God, the idols of the world, with the God of, of the Bible. And you know, you, you have been brought up well, you have sat under sound preaching probably for, the, for most of, of your lives. If not, you're, you're probably from this area or somewhere in America where you've heard that there is there's one true and living God. The gospel is exclusive. There's not many gods, there's not many ways. There is, there is one God, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one Gospel. Yet I found something interesting related to Psalm 115. For, for more than 50 years, the Gallup organization has been surveying the religious beliefs of American people. Now, first I want to tell you, I don't put, always put a lot of credence in, in surveys. Uh, what George Barna does, or Gallup, or whoever it is. Because it, it matters the questions that you, that you ask, and it matters the definitions of the terms when somebody asks. So, a lot of times statistics don't, don't have any credence. What's interesting about this study that I'm going to share with you is not, is not the details, but the lack of detail. For 50 years, Gallup has been surveying the religious beliefs of American people, and here's some of the findings. From 1947, 1947... You got a slide up there? There we go. That's the key for the fellas. 50-year Gallup survey, 1947. Here's the stats. Any of you have been around 1947? Some of you were around at 1907, it looks like. All right, 1947. A number of you were here. 1947, 93% of the people surveyed professed faith in God. 73 expected an afterlife. affirmed that they prayed. And 41% attended some kind of church service frequently. That's in 1947. Now, I'm getting ready, not yet, I'm getting ready to show you what that same survey said in 1997. Before I show that to you, what do you think think it's going to show? All right, 1997. Go ahead. In 1997, the survey findings were virtually the same, except that professed faith in God went up to 96%. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, listen to what the Gallup organization analyst said when he compared those two findings. What he was most concerned at least what, what most concerned one analyst was the content of the faith 
of that 96% who said they believed in God. He wondered if many of them believed in a celestial Santa Claus or a disengaged clockmaker who set the world in motion but now couldn't be bothered with human needs. Now, you look at America. You were around in 1997. That's quite a few years ago, believe it or not. Now, it seems like yesterday whenever you, when you think about it. But it's unlikely that 96% of Americans believed in the God of the Bible. And yet, that's the God that Psalm 115 says that you must believe in. And what's the point? The point is what you believe about God is the determining factor of whether you believe in God. We don't have the luxury of making up a God, which is exactly what an idol is. An idol is a God made in our image. All the religions of the world, you will find at the head of those religions, you will find a God that's like human beings, like creation. Sometimes, in very remedial places, they actually worship creation. They worship animals, or the sun, or the moon, or whatever it is. They glorify the creature, or the creation, rather than the, the creator. We don't get to make up God, yet the God of the Bible reveals Himself. He's holy, He's eternal, almighty, infinitely wise, gracious Creator who abhors sin and yet forgives it on the basis of the cross. And that is the contrast here between the futility of idols and the trustworthiness of, of, uh, of God. So Psalm 115, we said, gives us three reasons. We're to give glory to this God alone. And we covered the first one. He is the only God you must worship. Verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to review that for you. You can ask for the notes from someone. Tonight we're going to look at second and third. Second reason you must follow God alone or give Him glory alone is He's the only God to trust. Look at verse 9. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh, or trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So, verses 9 through 11, you, you can probably look there and see that it's all connected together. It's a trifecta of believers. Mentions Israel, the house of Aaron, and you who, you who fear the Lord. Israel is the people of God. It's, it's, it's all of the God's covenant people. The house of Aaron is the priesthood, the leaders, the religious leaders. And you who fear the Lord is, is everyone else, which clearly includes God-fearing Gentiles. It's anyone who fears the Lord. It's not somebody who is of the house of Israel or the house of Aaron. It's not somebody who's of the, the sons of, of, of Israel, but it's, but it's anyone who, who fears the Lord. Now watch the connection here. Look at verse 8. Those who make them, that's the idols, that can't see, hear, have no mouths, can't walk, can't do anything for you, are like them or become like them. So is everyone who, verse 8, trusts in them. You see that? O Israel, trust in the Lord. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. So there's a contrast. There are those who trust in idols. We can do nothing for you. 
But the people of Israel, the priests of Israel, and anyone who is a God-fearer, one who fears the Lord, trusts in, in Yahweh. Now, there's two ways to take this statement. And depending on your translation, you, you may have a different statement. Look at verse 9, 10, and 11. Notice how it says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. You can take that in the Hebrew as a command, saying, Israel, trust in the Lord. Or you can take it as a statement, which is probably more likely. But Israel trusts in the Lord. It's, and that seems more likely based upon the refrain. He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. So it kind of goes like this. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. But Israel trusts in the Lord. He is their help. He is their shield. It's contrasting the... The, the unbelievers with the, with the believers. Either way, the key word is trust. There are those who trust in idols, who can do nothing for them. But Israel, the priests, and anyone who fears the Lord trusts in, in Him. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust in the Lord? You say, yeah, I trust the Lord. I mean, if I'm going to heaven, I know that, that I've got to trust in the Lord. Do you trust the Lord, the way that this psalm is talking about. The way that the idolaters trust in the, in the idols. They look to them. Do you, do you trust in the Lord? Does your life evidence trusting in the Lord? Do you know that's a key proof to, to salvation? And it's the only way that you can please the Lord. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is... God is. He is the one true and living God. And He's what? A rewarder of those who seek Him. That's coming up in the next uh, point. He is the only God who blesses. He's a rewarder. And so here you have uh, you know, Hebrews 11.6. There are those who trust in idols, but Israel and the house of Aaron and those who fear the Lord trust in the Lord. They believe that God is God, that He alone is, is the Lord. And they also believe that He's a rewarder. He's one who blesses. He fulfills His promises to His people. In Hebrews 11.6, you must believe in God's existence and His trustworthiness to keep His promise. And that's, that's faith. And it's an evidence of, of trust. Television program preceding the 1988 Winter Olympics featuring blind skiers. I graduated from high school in 1988. A program preceding the Winter Olympics featured blind skiers being trained for, for slalom skiing. Now think about that, you who know what skiing's about. They were paired with, with sighted skiers. The blind skiers were taught on, on the flats how to make right turns and left turns. And these are completely blind. They can't see anything. And when they mastered that on the, on the flats, they were taken to the slalom slope, slope. Say that fast three times. Slalom slope. They were taken to the slalom slope where sighted partners skied beside them shouting left and right, left, right, left, right. 
And as they obeyed the commands of the sighted skiers, they were able to negotiate the course and cross the finish line, depended, depending solely on the sighted skiers' word. It was complete trust or complete catastrophe. Can you imagine being blind? Now, it would be one thing to be on the flat ground. You know, left, right, okay, I can do it. But, I mean, I can't ski being able to see going downhill. I mean, it's, it's just, wow, you know, just like a rocket to the bottom. To the right, to the left. I can't turn to the right, to the left, but they could. Can you imagine being completely blind? Feeling the sensation of picking up speed? Knowing by the wind hitting you in the face that you're going faster and faster and faster. And you hear left, right, and at the minute that that person says that, you have to cut. Or it's catastrophe. What a vivid picture of a Christian life and trusting in the Lord, isn't it? We think we're pretty smart in this world. We think that we need God's help, but for the most part, we know how to ski. And really, we're blind about what it really takes to complete the course. And trusting God means we rely solely on the Word of the One who is truly sighted, God Himself. And the Bible tells us, Left, right, left, right. And when you hear the word of the Lord, you obey, or it's catastrophe. And that's trust. It's a picture of trust. And when we trust Him, He delivers and He protects His people. Look at the refrain. First part's trust. Israel, trust. House of Aaron, trust. You who fear the Lord, trust. He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. He is our help. He is our deliverer. He's the one who comes to your rescue. And He is our shield. He is our protector. He is our deliverer and He is our protector. You can trust in Him. He will deliver you. He'll deliver you from death. He will deliver you from the devil. He will deliver you from doubt. He will deliver you from any other D you can think of. He's also your protector. I've heard it said before, and it's a true statement. If, if God wasn't in control of my life, if He was not my deliverer and my protector, I wouldn't want to get out from under the covers in the morning. But He is. He's the only God you must worship. He's the only God you can trust. And He's the only God who blesses. Look at verse 12. Now watch the transition here, verses 12 through 15. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. Same trifecta. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. You follow God alone because He's the only one who really blesses. Any blessing that comes, comes from the Lord. Even blessing that comes to an unbeliever. The Bible says the sun rises on the just as well as the unjust. It's His common grace. It, it comes to, to all mankind. Human beings who are in absolute rebellion against God, even atheists, even the God-haters of the world, receive blessings and benefits from being part of God's creation, part of God's world. Unbelieving America, the, the, the people that rail against the Lord, reap the blessings of the church because the church has been keeping the world from 
spinning completely out of, out of control. They don't realize the blessings that they get from the church, but they get it nonetheless. There's six references to blessing here. Verse 4, or in verses 12 through 13. You can see them there. My Bible has them all lined up. He will bless us, bless the house of Israel, bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. There's four of them there. The fifth reference is in verses 14 and 15. It's to the Abrahamic covenant. May the Lord give you increase, or may He bless you more and more, you and your, your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. And the sixth turns everything around and calls on believers to bless God. Look at verse 18. But we will bless the Lord. He will bless us. We will bless the Lord. He will bless us. And we will return that praise and and blessing. The psalmist's point is, is God is giver of, of blessing. Isn't it good to be blessed by the Lord? And you don't serve God for His blessings, but they sure are nice whenever they come. <laughs> he is... You know serving God brings great reward. You know obedience brings a clear conscience. It, it brings blessing. Look how this whole section about blessing is introduced in verse 12. The whole section is introduced with the fact that God has been mindful of us. The Lord has been mindful of us. Therefore, He'll bless us. He's mindful of us. He will bless us. Now watch the progression. Here's the same worshipers. Israel, the house of Aaron, those who fear the Lord. And it moves from God's power to save. His, he is their protector, He's their help and their shield, and it moves to God's intent to bless. He knows them. He's mindful of them. And the people that God is mindful of, He, he blesses. It's just the identification. They're God's people. You know what David said? You know, who am I? Who's man that you're even mindful of Him? And God has His eye eyes on the, the sparrow. If his eyes on the sparrow, his eyes on you. He's mindful of you. And he's mindful of every aspect of your life. And, and in every aspect of your life, he pours out blessing upon blessing. And now you're back to Hebrews 11.6. God is. It's the one to trust. You don't trust in an idol. You trust in the one true and living God. And he is a rewarder of those who, who seek him. He blesses. You don't have to worry about going to God and doing what God says to do, and the Lord saying, come back tomorrow, maybe I'll talk to you then. He fulfills His promises. He's a rewarder. Now look at the extent of the blessing. Look at verse 12. It's every group. You bless us, bless the house of Israel, house of Aaron, bless those who fear the Lord. It's also every person. Verse 13, both small and great. And He blesses every generation. In verse 14, May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. It's exactly what James says. When James encourages us when we're going through trials to, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who upbraideth not. He doesn't withhold. 
Ask the giving God is what it literally says in the original language. Who doesn't withhold? Great is His faithfulness, right? His mercies run out at the end of every day. Is that what it says? It says His mercies are new every morning. It means that there's a limitless supply. And it's for every group, every person, every generation, God truly is a giver. Effie Marsh enumerated some of God's blessings to His people. Listen to these. I don't have a slide, so you have to pay attention. The blessing that God gives to His people, He gives them an acceptance that can never be questioned, Ephesians 1.6. An inheritance that can never be lost, 1 Peter 1.3. A deliverance that can never be excelled, 2 Corinthians 1.10. A grace that can never be limited, 2 Corinthians 12.9. A hope that can never be disappointed, Hebrews 6.18. A bounty that can never be withdrawn, a joy that can never be diminished, a nearness to God that can never be reversed, a peace that can never be disturbed, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a salvation that can never be canceled. Praise His name. And because of that, we should praise Him. And you should do that with the time you have upon earth. I told you there are three parts to, actually four parts to this psalm. There's three reasons that you follow Him. He's worthy of worship. You can trust Him and He blesses. And then this whole psalm ends really with application. It ends with, so what? So what do you do with that, with that fact? Or will you follow this God? Will you give Him glory? How do you give God glory? Look at verse 16. because This is the fourth part of the psalm. Because of all that, we should praise Him with our time that we have upon the earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth He has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, that's into the grave, when the grave silences their mouths and their bodies. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 16, he says, The one who made the heavens and the earth, The one who made the heavens and the earth, verse 15, is the owner of all. Look at verse 15. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's the creator. And then verse 16 talks about his ownership. He's the creator. He owns it all. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. They're His. But the earth He has given to the children of men. He's the owner of all and He's given man His time on earth. To live. Notice the ownership and the generosity of God. The heavens are the Lord's. There's the ownership. The generosity, He's given the earth to the children of men. Now, what does that mean? Is the psalmist calling us to be some type of environmental Noah movie nutcase that just came out where animals and creation is exalted above human beings? He's given the earth to the children of men. It's the idea that while you're placed on the earth, you're given a stewardship. Of course you have responsibility not to be wasteful and destroy what God has created. But the point is, you've, you've, He's placed us on the earth for a purpose. And you fulfill that purpose while you're on the earth. A woman who fell out of a second 
floor window landed in a slow-moving garbage truck. Half buried in litter, she tried without success to get the truck driver's attention. A foreign diplomat standing on the sidewalk saw her and quipped, another example of how wasteful Americans are. That woman looks like she's good for at least another ten years. How many years do you have left? Are you good for another ten years? You good for another twenty? Another thirty? Well, I know the Bible says we're not promised another day. My point is, whatever you have left, whatever time you have on the earth, God has given you this time on the earth. He's placed you on the earth to to serve Him. Whatever time you have left, are you serving Jesus now? Don't waste your life. That's, That's the application of this psalm. You who trust in the Lord. Don't trust in an idol. Trust in the Lord. He's God. He's worthy. Not unto us, but unto you, O Lord. And the life He's given you, the time you have on earth, is a stewardship given to us by God. And whatever time we're given, it's to be lived for Him. That's why you're put on the earth. What did God say in Genesis? When He made man in His image and placed him in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's the point of that? Man was made in the image of God and we're to fill the earth with the image of God. And yet... After the fall, we filled the earth with the, the scars of, of Adam. The image of God's still there. And we still have that command. And the only way the earth can be filled with the image of God is through the gospel. Because Christ restores, He redeems, He recreates. And, and yeah, this earth is going to melt in fervent heat one day. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. But we fill the earth with the gospel. Right now. Look at verse 17. Dead men don't praise the Lord. Dead men don't praise Him, nor any who go down into silence. Sheol, or the grave. Those in the grave who are silenced. The idea that that life is coming to an end. Life will end for you. And the only thing that will matter is what you've done for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you need to become a preacher or do some radical kind of thing. It means that wherever God has called you, whatever gifts He's given you, you serve the Lord right there. You have the same capacity to glorify God. You do it with excellence. You do it, you do it as unto the Lord. And in doing that, you give glory to God. You bring glory to God. But there's coming a day when, when your life will not be able to praise the Lord on the earth. Look at verse 18. Look at the contrast. The dead do not praise the Lord, but we will bless the Lord. Now he turns all the blessing around. He will bless us. Now we will bless Him, but we will bless the Lord. And look at how the refrain, from this time forth and forever more. You know what he's saying? There will be no praise. There will come a time when, when the praise that you can give God with your life will come to an end. The grave will bring that to an end. And you will praise the Lord. You'll bless the Lord from now until that time. But for a believer, 
you have the capacity, you have the ability, you have the privilege of praising God forever and ever and ever because it doesn't end with the grave, right? The grave might silence your, your body's tongue and, and your ability with this earthly body, but absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day you're going to be resurrected and you'll get a new body and you'll live in heaven. And there will be no praise for God coming from unbelievers in hell. But believers in heaven will live out eternity in endless praise to the one who is worthy. And that's why he ends the psalm. Praise the Lord in the way that he does. There with the redeemed, whenever we stand before God, when we live forevermore in his presence, what do you think we'll be saying? I think we'll be saying in some way, shape, or form the way this psalm begins. Not unto us, oh Lord, not unto us, but to Your name be the glory. Because You're a Lamb who was slain and You're worthy to receive glory and power and, and honor. Application of the psalm is what we do with our life while we have breath, while we have life. And this makes it all possible, doesn't it? Um, up to the moment of salvation, the best that we could offer God is our filthy rags. The best that we could offer God did nothing but condemn us. But now we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. Which He prepared beforehand.